Good evening, everyone, and a very warm welcome to the Borders Book Festival um, and to this, the inaugural Bruin Dolphin Lecture. We, um, we were trying to think about what to do once we'd handed over the sponsorship of the Borders Book Festival. And it became apparent for 250 years as a business, we've been looking after people's money, trying to make assumptions about what the future looks like. And for 250 years, we've got away with it without really knowing what the future might look like. And part of the reason we've got away with it is we believe in something very simple. We believe that you have to make an argument that none of us know what's going to happen tomorrow. But if we think about it, make rational thoughts about what's going on in the world, how we react to it, what the political situation, the economic, micro and macro looks like, you build a very quick idea of what might be the outcome. You then get as many bright people in a room as possible and make them discuss it to the point where you form an argument. And therefore, sponsoring a lecture series where we get much brighter people together and make them think about the future, particularly today in an environment where the world is changing at a rate that I don't think any of us had ever expected to see, and I don't think mankind's probably seen since the start of the Industrial Revolution, it felt like the right time to start a process where we could encourage people to think on ours and your behalf. So when we were thinking about who to bring along, Alan was at the top of the list. His experience as a journalist, as a researcher, as a special correspondent for the BBC, throughout a period which has taken him through, through Europe, through the Middle East, into Afghanistan, reporting on the events and thinking about how they change the environment in which we operate as a society and how that reflects back on us is second to none. And therefore, we were absolutely delighted when Alan volunteered to come and give the inaugural lecture for us. So it is my great pleasure to now welcome onto the stage Alan Little. <laughs> They brought me a lecture, nick of time, I think. Thank you very much indeed. Um, thank you very much indeed for inviting me to give this uh, uh, lecture. It's a great honour and privilege to be here. And what a great festival this is. Uh, as soon as you walk through the gates here, you feel the atmosphere and the intellectual excitement and curiosity and, and the sort of creative buzz of it. It's a great thrill to be here, so I'm delighted. Um, let me start this with a thank you to Bruin Dolphin. Sponsorship of this kind of civic enterprise is absolutely vital in our society. And without civic-minded companies like Bruin Dolphin, it wouldn't happen. Uh, I chair the board of directors of the Edinburgh Book Festival. We also have great friends like that from the private sector uh, and making the, the contribution they make to the civic life of Edinburgh, just as, as you make a contribution to the civic life of this part of Scotland, and it is absolutely invaluable. Let me start with a disclaimer. I'm not a scholar, I'm not an academic, I'm not much of an intellectual or a maker of public policy. I've been making my living for 30 years by the telling of stories. I've traveled the world listening to people's stories, trying to make sense of them and to convey them to you in a way that will, will help you make sense of the world. We're living in a great age of transition. We know what we're in transition from. We do not yet know what we're in transition to. And so it's an age of anxiety and uncertainty and also an age of anger. I want to spend some time talking about the way we receive and process and communicate and consume news because it's changing at a dizzying speed. I began my career in news. I worked in a, in a local radio newsroom in the south of England in Southampton. And uh, we were on the third floor of an old Victorian building. And our television colleagues were on the second floor. And we used to batter out our news stories on, in, uh, on, on old-fashioned typewriters in triplicate using blue carbon paper. Do you remember that? <laughs> and to send our stories to our television colleagues, we used to roll it up into a, a, a cylinder, put it in a plastic tube, put that into a tube, press a button, compressed air, took it one floor down. That was information technology in our lifetimes. Uh, in the sense that, yes, it was technological, compressed air, and B, it was a means of conveying uh, information from one place to another. And now uh, we're in the age of the smartphone. My life as a foreign correspondent began by sheer fluke with an episode that turned out to be one of those pivotal moments on which history turns. I remember the exact time and date, 4 p.m., Thursday the 24th of November, 
1989. I had spent the day at a technical college on the outskirts of the city of Prague with students who were planning demonstrations, making banners, preparing speeches to try to bring down the communist regime. My presence, I see now, was part of what, a small part, of what was electrifying for them, access to a Western journalist, to a Western reporter, getting their story out over the heads of their communist regime. My presence, in a sense, connected them to what they wanted, which is to say, the West, Europe, what it represented, freedom of speech, freedom of movement, an end to the arbitrary exercise of power. They wanted to live in a world that was open to multiple interpretations, a world in which it is normal to have more than one way of seeing things, a world without a rigid core doctrinal truth handed down from above and through which every experience, every thought had to be filtered. The communist regime denounced the student protesters as bourgeois reactionaries and called on the working class to defend socialism. I went out with a young medical student to a big steel town on the outskirts of Prague. On the way out, the medical student said to me, when I sit my final exams in two years' time, I have to pass five exams. Medicine, to become a doctor. Medicine, hygiene, uh, uh, surgery, obstetrics and gyne gynecology, and Marxism-Leninism. <laughs> there was a professor of Marxism-Leninism in the medical faculty at Charles University. That was what they were fighting against. We got to the steel the steel works. It was a huge, one of the biggest in Europe. Václav Havel, the leader of the revolution, had called on the working class to, to down tools and strike for a symbolic two hours. The communist regime said, no, the working class will defend socialism. Twelve o'clock noon on the dot, the gates opened and out poured the working class with banners that read, plurality, not brutality. And the, the bourgeois reactionary students are our children. Václav Havel had been appearing on the square, and I bumped into my old friend Misha Glenny uh, earlier. Some of you might have heard him talk. Misha was there as well at the same time and understood what was going on better, I think, than any other English-speaking reporter. So it's a delight to run into Misha in the square. Havel was drawing bigger and bigger crowds. I went to the square with a young woman who was 21 years old. She was acting as a translator for me. And as soon as we emerged from the metro station to the ground level, she kind of gasped in disbelief because she saw on the platform, on the balcony with Havel, Alexander Dubček. And she recognised him straight away. And that was intriguing for me because Dubček's face and voice had been banned from the public sphere for 21 years since the failed Prague Spring of 1968, the year she had been born. And I wondered how it was that she'd even recognised him. So the following day, she took me home to the little flat she shared with her parents and her brother. Her father took me into a hidden little cupboard, which was a, a kind of private archive of the events of 1968. There were posters and leaflets and newspapers and cuttings and photographs and even records that had been recorded and released in that year. Uh, and he kept it there because he wanted an alternative history of the country to teach his children. Yes, study what they teach you in school. It's all lies. This is the truth of our country. And, he, and it was de a, a dangerous thing to do. He listened to the BBC World Service, the Czech service of the BBC, with the, with the volume down and the uh, radio up to his ear uh, in case one of his neighbours denounced him. Havel's nascent political party was called Civic Forum. It was an assertion of the idea of civil society. It was a repudiation of despotism. It was a repudiation of the arbitrary exercise of power by a self-perpetuating elite. For the people of Eastern and Central Europe at that time had believed for a long time that an, a foreign tyranny had been imposed on them and had stood for 40 years between them and their rightful destiny. And the rightful destiny was something that was easily expressed. It was called the West or Europe. The revolutions of 1989 were all about becoming Western, becoming properly and fully European. The philosopher Ernest Gellner who died in the mid-1990s. He was at the end of his life when this was happening. Just a few months before he died, he wrote this. Atlantic society is endowed with civil society, capital C, capital S, and on the whole, at any rate since 1945, it has enjoyed it without giving it much or any thought. Uh, 
Much contemporary social theory takes it for granted in an almost comical manner. Civil society is simply presupposed as some kind of inherent attribute of the human condition. It is the corollary of a certain vision of man. It is a naive universalization of one rather fortunate kind of man, the inhabitant of civil society. It is only the rediscovery of this ideal in Eastern Europe that has reminded the inhabitants of the liberal states on either shore of the northern Atlantic of just what it is that they possess and ought to hold dear. I want to talk in the next few minutes about some of the things that are now threatening what we have in civil society. That term, civil society, by the way, was coined in Edinburgh by the 18th century philosopher Adam Ferguson, one of the earliest recorded uses of the word civilization is by Ferguson. Gellner was born Czech and his family fled the Nazis uh, and settled in England in the 1930s. This is how he defined civil society. It is that set of diverse non-governmental institutions which is strong enough to counterbalance the state and while not preventing the state from, fooling it for, from, from fulfilling its role as keeper of the peace and arbitrator among major interests, can nevertheless prevent it from dominating and atomizing the rest of society, which is precisely what is happening now in some of Europe's neighbours, Russia, Turkey, and is threatening some, even some member states of the European Union. We are all here tonight because we are participants, participants in and perpetrators of civil society. Bruin Dolphin is a supporter of that most important phenomenon. Standing on Wenceslas Square that day, it seemed to me clear that something tectonic had happened, even at the time. Just by daring to appear in public, Dubček had bestowed liberation on the people. Even at the time, I thought of this moment as the reunification of Europe and the final and definitive end of the Second World War. It was thrilling stuff. It was my first foreign assignment. It's been downhill ever since. <laughs> but in retrospect, there's something else that wasn't so clear to me at the time. The first word that Dubček spoke in public was not an abstract noun. It wasn't liberty or freedom or democracy. It was the name of the nation. He spoke it slowly in his rich baritone, in the powerful vocative case addressing the people and the nation, Československo. The name of the nation... For this had the character not just of political emancipation, but of national liberation as well. And we should have seen in that, but didn't, a portent of something that would come later, a darker impulse in the European character, an appeal to nationalism, even nativism, and an inclination to view others with suspicion or hostility. But we didn't think of that at the time. We thought instead simply that liberal democracy had triumphed in the great struggle of our time. It had seen off fascism 40 years earlier, and now it had seen off communism as well. The idea took hold that liberal democracy was now the inevitable destiny of all humankind. The US academic Francis Fukuyama wrote the book that famously captured that idea with the phrase, the end of history and the last man. Well, history was preparing to avenge that complacency. For one thing, not every communist dictator in Europe was swept from power by that wave of popular uprisings. One survived another 10 years by unleashing the twin demons of European nationalism and war, Slobodan Milosevic of Serbia. Come forward with me three years from that moment in the square. October 1992, the war in Bosnia has been raging for seven months. It was, in most places, not really a war at all, but a huge state-sponsored criminal enterprise, an enterprise that came to be known as ethnic cleansing. One day in central Bosnia, I watched a procession of people emerge from a damp autumnal forest. They'd been walking in terror for two days. They looked like the living dead. They were just a trickle at first, then a flood most on foot, but some on horse or donkey-drawn farm vehicles. It was a scene from a bygone age, older than the First World War, older even than the American Civil War. It was a scene from Tolstoy, a pre-mechanized age. They'd been driven from their homes a couple of days earlier by a powerful Serbian advance and had picked up what they could and run. I saw an old man, exhausted, gaunt, his white face bruised from a fall and stained with dried blood. 
He'd become separated from his wife and was worried that she, was, she hadn't made it. I asked him how old he was. He said he was 80. He was utterly bewildered, and as he explained to us what had, what had happened two days earlier. Finally, I asked him the question, do you mind if I ask you, are you a Muslim or a Croat? And the answer he gave me shames me to this day as I hear it echo down the decades. I am, he said, a musician. I had a grand piano in my house. My grandfather brought it from Dubrovnik in 1948. I wanted to leave it to my grandson. Now I don't even know whether he's alive. The prevailing way in the Western democracies of seeing that war was that it was essentially Balkan, as if Balkan peoples are somehow genetically or culturally predisposed to mutual slaughter every generation or two. It wasn't so. War was a policy choice made by a criminalized elite in Belgrade. War became the power base of that elite. The experience introduced me to two things that 25 years on have renewed pertinence in our own day. The first is the idea of the illiberal democracy. Milosevic's profoundly illiberal regime carried paradoxically a kind of democratic legitimacy because it was endorsed by majorities at successive elections. He was re-elected. His country's deliberate retreat from democracy was backed by the people at the ballot box. In the winter of 1993, I sat in a cafe in Belgrade with a Serbian friend. There was hyperinflation. It, it was running at 3 million percent a month. It was a world record then. We ordered a beer. My friend said, you know, if you think you might like a second beer, it's better to order them both at the same time. <laughs> because by the time you finish the first one, the price will have doubled. Milosevic had handed control of the economy over to criminal gangs in return for their support. He printed money to pay for the war in Bosnia that he denied he was even involved in. Hyperinflation destroyed the urban middle class, made them paupers. The socio-economic base of civil society, the educated professional city-dwelling elite, was cowed and impotent. Milosevic was able to blame the country's woes on external enemies, Germany, Turkey, Bosnian Muslims, the Vatican, anybody. It was everybody's fault except his own. Serb popular opinion walked hand in hand with him. The second of these ideas, which has renewed pertinence in our own day, is populism. There are two ways to think of this. Francis Fukuyama, again, defined it last year in the wake of the Trump victory as this. It is, he said, the name ruling elites give to a democratic decision that goes against what they want. I think this is as dangerously complacent as his idea 25 years ago that we'd reached the end of history. I prefer this idea of populism, that a populist leader is one who will take a majority decision and use it to crush all dissent by characterizing that dissent as subversive of the will of the people. It is there when Donald Trump encourages crowds at his rallies to chant, lock her up. It is there when a popular newspaper prints on its front page the pictures of three judges under the headline, Enemies of the People. Understand where that leads. The attempt to delegitimize the dissenting voice starts with newspaper headlines and ends with an old man at the end of a blameless life walking out of a damp forest having lost everything, including his wife and grandchildren. The 20th century taught us that democracy contains the seed of its own destruction. We should all be reading histories of Weimar Germany, that century's signature lesson in how the ballot box can be an instrument in its own demise. Come forward with me again, another 11 years. One day in the spring of 2003, a few days after the American-led invasion of Iraq and the symbolic toppling of the statue of Saddam Hussein, I came back to my room in the Hotel Palestine in Baghdad, a concrete tower block that looks out over the broad, green-brown sweep of the Tigris River and the crashing, teeming life of the city beneath it. These were days of extraordinary tumult. We foreign reporters were enjoying a freedom that we'd never had under the old regime, and which, though we didn't know it yet, would be cut off soon enough. We could get in our cars at that time and go pretty much, pretty much anywhere. It was before the kidnapping started. I went one day to the Shia suburb that had been called Saddam City and was now called Sadr City. The main highway through the suburb had a central reservation wide enough to support a row of market stalls, 
a vegetable cart, an old woman selling cooking oil, a man with jerry cans of petrol, all the vendors haggling with a small and animated crowd of buyers. And then something new, and for a moment, heart-stoppingly different. An arms stall. Bearded men fingered the safety catches on AK-47s, cocking the weapons and firing the occasional round into the air, trying each one for comfort and size, as casually as they might try on a pair of shoes in a high street department store. Our car slowed to a crawl in the chaotic traffic. The men at the armstall noticed the curiosity of the foreigners in the slow-moving vehicle, and for a moment before the traffic cleared and our vehicle sped away, we felt a powerful and menacing foretaste of the anti-Western sentiment that was already well entrenched. And in the middle of this tumult, I came back to my hotel room in the Hotel Palestine. There was no electricity. Sunlight slanted in horizontally in the dusty corridors. And I saw at the end of the passage outside my room two figures silhouetted against the white glare of the sun. As I approached, I saw that they were soldiers, their uniforms stained with the mud of the Tigris Valley. Americans. They were quite an intimidating presence until they spoke. Sir, one of them said, and there was a quiet, shy deference in his voice. I saw that they were young, achingly young, perhaps 19 years old, lettuce-fresh faces above long, lean, loose-limbed frames, no more than boys in the grown-up garb of desert camouflage. Sir, he said, we heard that there was a satellite phone in this room. We haven't been able to call home in four months. So I let them in. I said, you can use the phone for two minutes. They were the first in a trickle of young US servicemen who had come to my room for this purpose in the weeks that lay ahead. And I started to call these, call, call these phone calls the high moms. There was a great poignancy in this. The first person they wanted to call was their mother. I had spent weeks in Kuwait waiting for the invasion to begin. Impatient U.S. civil servants would talk with wild enthusiasm about the coming challenge, about the, ro the rolling forward of Jeffersonian democracy in the biblical lands of Mesopotamia. History had ended and liberal democracy had won. It was simply a case of removing the remaining obstacles. This vast military machine that we had watched assemble in, in Kuwait with its hardware and its discipline and its resolution and unshakable belief in the virtue of its mission... It was composed, in part at least, of boys who more than anything missed their mothers. The ambition of the enterprise, the task the invasion set itself, was numbingly, catastrophically out of touch with the reality that was about to unfold. We watched as the ideals of 18th century America foundered in the desert sand. It was not the handful of former Iraqi dis dissidents returning from exile in the West who had won the respect and trust of the Iraqi public. It was the imams. It was the clerics, the religious leaders who emerged in the vacuum left by the fall of Saddam. One day shortly afterwards, an Iraqi military arms dump exploded in a residential suburb. Some houses that had survived the war were flattened and many people were killed. What was impressive in the hours that lay ahead was how quickly and well-organized the anti-American demonstration that took place. I said in my report for that night's news, the explosion has ignited an anti-American fury. Within hours, that fury was organized. It hasn't taken long for this to turn into a demonstration of rage against the Americans, the people who thought that they were going to be welcomed as liberators. Today, nothing the Americans can say will be heard amid the din, the organized and carefully marshaled chorus of anti-American sentiment. One man in a, in a crowd screamed in English at me in front of my television camera, the United States is the enemy of Islam. It says so in the Holy Quran. <laughs> the United States was brought into creation a thousand years after the writing of the Quran. One of the great foreign correspondents of the 20th century was Martha Gellhorn. She went to Spain during the Civil War. She worked through the Second World War, Korea. Like most of us, she asked herself why she kept putting herself in harm's way to try to report the news, especially in highly dangerous places. In 1959, she wrote this. When I was young... I believed in the perfectibility of man and in progress and thought of journalism as a guiding light. If people were told the truth, 
If dishonour and injustice were clearly shown to them, they would at once demand the saving action, punishment of wrongdoers, and care for the innocent. How people were to accomplish these reforms, I did not know. That was their job. A journalist's job was to bring news to be eyes for their conscience. I think I must have imagined public opinion as a solid force, something like a tornado, always ready to blow on the side of the angels. I wonder now whether I thought of public opinion as a solid force. Maybe I think I carried that delusion with me into the killing fields of Bosnia and Rwanda and the wars in Congo and Iraq and Libya and Sierra Leone and Afghanistan. But the way news is gathered, transmitted and consumed is changing with dizzying speed. It gives a new urgency to the question, what's the point? Those 14 years from 1989 to 2003 bookend an age of extraordinary optimism, an optimism so intense that it looks in retrospect like collective self-delusion. In the last decade of the 15th century, the 1490s, two world-changing events took place that shrank our world and made it for the first time in human history genuinely global. The Portuguese sent a fleet of ships around the southern tip of Africa and opened a sea route to India for the first time. And the Spanish sent a fleet west under the command of Christopher Columbus to try to do the same thing. These two events ushered in a period of Western global hegemony that has lasted 500 years. And that Western hegemony is coming to an end in our lifetimes. I don't think that the, that, that means the West is in decline, but it certainly means it doesn't control the world anymore. And compared to the challenges that the end of, the, 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 the end of global hegemony will bring us, the Cold War, in whose menacing shadow we all grew up, will come to seem like a family argument between essentially European first cousins. Marxism and liberalism, after all, are both products of 18th and 19th century European thought. After the 2003 invasion of Iraq, Iraqis did enjoy a period when the old restrictions were lifted. They were free to express themselves and to the bewilderment and dismay of their self-styled liberators. Some Iraqis used this new freedom not only to denounce America and call for a jihad to drive out the Americans, but to argue for the introduction of practices that were fundamentally incompatible with democratic norms. I had one conversation in those early weeks with a group of people, women as well as men, who thought the most urgent priority for the new government should be the introduction of public stoning for women found guilty of adultery. So liberal democracy did not become the default position of all mankind. Many alternatives emerged to claim the affections and loyalties of people around the world. In China, state capitalism in a one-party state. In parts of the Middle East, an Islamic caliphate. In others, Arab nationalism allied to a moral and social conservatism rooted in religious observance or to military dictatorship. In Iran, a theocratic state, the rule of elderly clerics. And in Russia and Turkey, an authoritarian nationalism constructed around the personality of a single charismatic leader. But the threat to liberal democracy, to what we call the West, doesn't come from those alternative models. It comes from within. For 70 years since the end of the Second World War, we've thought of leadership of the Western world as essentially English-speaking. This is something that the Allies in other parts of the democratic world have largely accepted, though grudgingly, in the case of France. But the result of the Brexit referendum and the, ele the election of Donald Trump changes that for the first time in 70 years. It is no accident that in his last foreign trip as president, Barack Obama went to Berlin. He was handing on the baton not to, his not to his successor in the White House, but to Angela Merkel. For that is where leadership of that old, pre-Brexit, pre-Trump conception of what the Western world is and should be now resides. I was in Washington in December. I went to the Roosevelt Memorial there. It's kind of pilgrimage for me. It celebrates a president who, in the words of Winston Churchill, brought the new world to the rescue of the old. America in the 1940s was the arsenal of democracy, the indispensable nation. We often behave as though the 70 years of peace in Europe that we have lived through since 1945 is the norm of European history rather than the exception. That 70-year period is in large measure an American achievement. But now we have a president in the White House who is actively hostile to the European Union, who has been actively hostile 
to American participation in NATO and to the role that America has played these last 70 years in the democratic world. The award-winning writer Bill Emmett, who spent nearly three decades as the economist at The Economist all over the world, has identified three ways in which the Trump presidency undermines the rules-based liberal order that the US built in the years after 1945. First, economic protectionism, the withdrawal from trade agreements that he believes have undermined American jobs. Second, he believes the security alliances that America entered into in the 1940s are no longer in the US national interest. And third, his desire to implement a program of religious discrimination in a much tighter immigration regime, which, Emmett says, would take the US back to the immigration policies of the 1930s, a period of popular isolationism. Trump's ascendancy mirrors, to some extent, that of Brexit. I went to Johnstown, Pennsylvania last year, where Trump had spoken at a rally and promised to bring back the coal and steel industries on which that city had been built in the 19th century. I went from there to Barnsley in Yorkshire, where I heard this story. A child comes home from school with a lump of coal from a school project, and he says to his grandfather, in Barnsley, Grandad, do you know what this is? And the grandfather says, yeah, it's coal. And the, the, so the child says, wow, how do you know that? <laughs> in Barnsley. I went to Oldham, officially the poorest town in England. As recently as the 1970s, it had 365 textile mills. Those mills are still there. They're all derelict. They sit there in the centre of town as though to constantly remind the people of the misfortune into which they've fallen. In Johnstown, Pennsylvania, it's the same scene. There are streets where every other house is abandoned and boarded up. You can't give a house away there. I went to the old Grimethorpe Colliery in Yorkshire. It closed in the mid-1990s. There's a huge retail distribution centre there now. It employs staff on short-term and zero-hours contracts. Many have no idea from one day to the next whether they'll be working the next day or not. We talk a lot about fake news and the post-truth world that is so evidently a part of the Donald Trump phenomenon. But people in Johnstown and Oldham and Barnsley know the big truths of their lives. And these are not truths that have featured very prominently in the national discourse mediated by the mainstream media in which I've spent my career. It seems to me supremely ironic that the two countries that embrace the deregulating, globalizing, liberalizing, privatizing, open borders agenda so vigorously in the 1980s, most vigorously, Britain and America, are the very two countries that have now felt the backlash. Brexit and Trump are part of what amounts to a nascent challenge to the values of the 1980s and the slow burn consequence of the social and economic revolution that those two countries went through in that decade. Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan both shifted the center ground of their nation's politics. They created a new economic consensus which saw the market as the engine of wealth creation. Growing levels of economic inequality did not matter. They were good, in fact, because as long as aggregate wealth was growing, which for most of the 40 years we're talking about it has been, then everybody would benefit because that wealth would trickle down. A rising tide would lift all boats. In both America and Britain, the traditional parties of the centre-left accepted this new consensus. It's said that when Mrs Thatcher was asked later in life what she considered her greatest political achievement, she said, Tony Blair. <laughs> new Labour, like the Democrats in the United States, came to see the politics of class grievance, of, of social and economic inequality, as a vote-loser, old-fashioned, anti-aspirational, and increasingly challenged their energies into the pursuit of a different kind of equality ethnic, gender, sexual orientation. And huge strides were made in all of those fields in the last 20 to 25 years. But where is the gender equality in post-industrial communities where in most households a woman is holding down two or three low-paid part-time jobs while her husband hasn't worked for years? At the Roosevelt Memorial in Washington, there are quotations from FDR's speeches as president engraved in stone tablets. One of them reads, The test of our progress is not whether we add more to the abundance of those who have much. It is whether we provide enough for those who have too little. For 40 years, we've been adding to the abundance 
of those who have much. This revolt has been incubating for decades, and we, the middle classes who have largely benefited from globalization, either didn't notice or ignored it or dismissed it as illiberal or reactionary. It's not only a popular revolt. It is an intellectual one, too. The idea is gaining intellectual traction that extreme levels of economic inequality are not just unfair, not just socially unjust, but actually economically inefficient. Emmett makes the point that liberal democracies lose their popular legitimacy in conditions of great inequality when a sense of common citizenship is eroded. We are and always will be unequal in all sorts of ways, he writes. Income, wealth, talent, profession, personality, social status. That is not the problem. But in principle, in a Western society, we are or should be equal in our basic civic rights and in the political voice that that, that gives us. It is the breakdown in trust that sense of fairness that you feel when you go to Oldham or Barnsley or Johnstown, Johnstown, Pennsylvania. At the start of this year, there were gloomy predictions among some who voted Remain that the anti-European juggernaut would roll on through France and the Netherlands and Austria. It hasn't. I lived in France for a while and came to understand French Euroscepticism. French society is divided in very similar ways to our own society. On my way home from work in Paris, I used to walk past a poignant little scene, a row of little plaques set in stone uh, at at places where French resistance fighters had died during the last days of Nazi occupation in 1944. The Second World War is not something to laugh about in most of Europe, or to boast about, or gloat about, or even take quiet pride in. It was a shaming and humiliating experience for most Europeans in a way that it was not for most Britons or Americans. Britain emerged from the Second World War with immense moral authority, but declined to join the nascent European project. It's said that uh, Clement Attlee described the original founding six as six nations, four of whom we had to rescue from the other two. The European project has never meant to the British what it has meant to the mainland European partners. They, almost without exception, suffer dictatorship and military defeat and the humiliation of foreign occupation. Britain did not. They associate the European project not just with prosperity, but with deliverance from the darkest chapter of their history and with the salvation of their democracies. Britain's relationship with the project has always been much more transactional. It's been about trade. I'm taking too much time, so I'm going to jump forward a bit. In the mid-80s, the European community expanded. It lifted three countries of southern Europe, Spain, Portugal, Greece, out of poverty, out of tyranny, right-wing or or fascist dictatorships, military dictatorships, into democracy. The Spanish, the Greeks, the Portuguese saw that transition to democracy as fundamentally a European project. It's interesting to me that one of the countries hit hardest by the the economics of the last 10 years, Spain, has not had a populist or even popular anti-European movement. They remember Franco. They remember what life was like before they were fully mainstream members of the European project. They were... When Britain was applying to join the European community, as it then was, the doors we knocked on were in Paris. That was its centre of gravity. The terms on which we leave will be decided in Berlin... The European project was founded to some extent to Europeanise Germany, to create a Germany from which the continent would be safe. By 1945, Germany and France had gone to war three times in 70 years. Germany invaded France five times after 1814. The founding ideal was to to bind Germany so thoroughly to its Western neighbours as to make war not just undesirable, but actually impossible. The transformation of Germany seems to me to be the most important public achievement of our lifetimes. This is the best Germany we have ever had. It is now the most robust defender of the post-war liberal order. But its power sits at the heart of the European Union's big problem, its crisis of popular legitimacy. That idea of neutralizing and Europeanizing Germany is still live. When the Berlin Wall came down, the then Chancellor, Helmut Kohl, some of you might not have heard this, by the way, whose death was announced this afternoon. 
was he was determined to press ahead with German reunification quickly because he thought that the collapse of the Soviet Union had opened a window that wouldn't stay open forever, that a resurgent Russia would seek to prevent German reunification. Other European leaders preferred to Germany. They said, they used to say, we love Germany so much that we'd, we'd like to have two of them. But Cole, Cole's vision prevailed. France agreed to support the reunification project, but only if Germany agreed in turn to give up the Deutschmark, to create a single European currency. They did it without a referendum. It was, the Deutschmark was the symbol, not the flag, not the anthem, not the language, not the, it was the symbol of Germany's post-war economic miracle and the, the post-war Germany's national identity. But they gave it up, and they gave it up for a European ideal. I went to Berlin a few years ago to see a man called Dietrich von Kiel. He's one of those great Europeans, a man for whom the building of the European Union was part of his life's mission. Compare the Europe into which he was born to the one he helped build. He was born in the 1930s. Adolf Hitler was all-powerful in Germany and was about to lay waste to most of Europe. Von Kiel's family had come from eastern Pomerania, which is now in Poland, it was in Germany then. His father, whom he never really got to know, was killed on the Eastern Front during the invasion of Poland in 1939. He remembers as a 10-year-old fleeing across half of Europe as Soviet troops advanced from the East. My mother, he said, was determined that if we were to surrender, we would surrender to the British. These she considered the most civilized of our enemies. <laughs> Little wonder that so many of his gen generation of Europeans devoted themselves to building a Europe in which war between the European powers would not just be undesirable, it would be actually impossible. The European project was a way to normalize Germany, to Europeanize the country. Von Kiel became Germany's ambassador to the European Union in the 1990s and played a key role in the building of the single currency. For him, it was above all a continuation of the process that had begun in 1945, the process by which Europe turned its back on a thousand years of settling its differences by force of arms. But for the Germans, there were other more material motivations. Germany is Europe's great exporter. A third of its economic output is exports, most of that to the European Union. By the early 1990s, Germany was growing exasperated with Europe's fluctuating currencies. A sudden devaluation in a neighbor's currency would make German exports prohibitively expensive. Von Kio said to me, we wanted to stop Italy devaluing the lira. It has to do with things like Bavaria needing to sell surplus milk to Italy or Volkswagen in Lower Saxony wishing to keep competition with Fiat within certain limits. So how did it all go wrong? The former British ambassador to the EU, Sir John Kerr, now Lord Kerr, said to me, 20 years ago, when we were working this out, we thought five or maybe six countries would join the euro, would be qualified to join the euro when it started. It never occurred to me that Italy or Spain, let alone Greece, would, would be allowed in. The rules were first bent to let Italy join. Italy had a national debt close to 120% of GDP. The maximum was supposed to be 60%. Italy was a political problem. Uh, a former advisor to Helmut Kohl said to me, but Italy had an unusual debt in that most of that money was owed to its own people, so it was a kind of internal thing, so we let it go. And once Italy were in, Spain, Portugal and the others came in. I went to see an amazing woman in Greece, an economist called um, Miranda Sala. She was working for Salomon Brothers in London in the 1990s and was watching in dismay Greece, her own country, prepare for membership of the euro. She said to me, I used to take my clients to see the head of the National Statistics Office. We used to call him the, magici the magician because he could make everything disappear. <laughs> Inflation, poof, disappear. The deficit, poof, disappear. How did Greece cook the books? This is what she said to me. Take the state railway company. It was losing a billion euros a year. It had more employees than passengers. One finance minister declared that it would be cheaper to send everybody by taxi. <laughs> Did this billion euro deficit appear in the national budget? No. Why not? Because the railway company issued shares that the Greek government bought with that money and wrote it down as a financial transaction, not an item of expenditure, a technical loophole allowing the cost to be hidden. So you hold this completely worthless piece of paper, which is a share issue for a billion euros, and it balances the books. And the European Union knew that that was going on. 
So now we have uh, a, a, a Europe in which Germans, proud of their hard-won reputation for fiscal discipline, blame feckless southern neighbours. Greeks blame Germany for imposing an unelected prime minister on them and casually show on television caricatures of Angela Merkel dressed as Hitler. Germany is haunted by its history. It's afraid of its own power. It doesn't really want to have a foreign policy at all. Europe is its foreign policy. I asked Dietrich von Kiel what Europe meant to him, and he said this. My father's bones lie somewhere in Poland. I've no idea where. I negotiated Poland's accession to the European Union. My father, as a young Wehrmacht officer, fought in Finland against the Soviet Union in the 1920s. I negotiated Finland's accession to the EU. The EU, he said, is the difference between the life I have lived and the one my father was denied by war. A colleague of his put it to me like this, Germany shares a land border with nine neighbours. When I was a young diplomat after the war, we made peace, a lasting peace, with all our neighbours to the west. I didn't believe for a minute that in my lifetime we would do the same with all our neighbours to the east as well. But that is what has happened. To a man of my generation, it is unbelievable. We have a Europe now that settles its dispute without recourse to arms, but in which the straitjacket of the single currency has locked the economies of southern Europe into a German military discipline for which their economies are entirely unsuited. And so the European project, which started out as a solidarity project, has become instead a mechanism that reinforces inequality across large swathes of the continent. What began as a scheme to Europeanize Germany has morphed into a scheme to Germanize Europe. In the age of anger, the project is coming apart. Europeans used to argue about a multi-speed Europe. The reality is we're now in a multi-destination Europe. We're not all headed in the same direction anymore. France and Holland may have rejected their far-right candidates this time, but the next electoral cycle is the one that pro-Europeans should be concerned about five years from now. I want to finish with a personal observation. Not long ago, I was in Kabul in a hotel in the city centre. I heard the blast of an explosion. When that happens, you wish it away. You want to believe that it's the sound of something heavy that a construction worker has dropped. But then the unmistakable dug-a-dug-a-dug of machine gun fire left no more room for wishful thinking, and soon the air of central Kabul rang with the noise of the fight. It's quite a moment, this sudden descent into violence. Once it starts, it seems carried by an unstoppable momentum. You want it to be amenable to reason. Please stop. Your pulse quickens. Your stomach lurches. Suddenly, you're on heightened alert. As the chaos was unleashed outside, we headed for the basement, down the winding stairwell, where we met, on their way up, Afghan national policemen, flak-jacketed and heavily armed. They took up gun positions on the roof, firing volley after deafening volley into neighbouring buildings. We followed what was happening by listening. Violence moved in an arc around us, engulfing what was supposed to be the fortified heart of the Afghan capital. You could taste on your tongue and in your throat the acrid gunpowder burn of spent rifle rounds. Soon, four Afghan police came down into the basement, carrying one of their comrades, gravely wounded or more probably dead. Two held him by the arms, two by the legs. They carried him past me, perhaps three feet away. I was on the phone to the Today programme talking to Jim Nochte at the time as this happened. I looked into his motionless face and it was streaked with blood and his still glassy eyes. I'm certain he was dead. We Europeans are very distant from this kind of experience. We see it on TV. We think it can't happen here. I lived for four years among the people of former Yugoslavia. In 1991, they thought it couldn't happen to them either. On the 60th anniversary of D-Day, I went to the beaches of Normandy and watched the old men assemble and take part in the parades and march past blown-up, enlarged images of themselves as young men. There was a lot of talk among younger folk and among the assembled world leaders of the heroism of that generation and of their courage. We all felt humble in their presence. They themselves wanted no talk of that, I watched them slope off one by one to the cemeteries where they sought out the individual graves of those they had known and left behind in the soil of liberated France. They all carried memories of the beaches from 60 years earlier, littered with the bodies of young men with whom they'd made the crossing. In the cemeteries and in the presence of that memory, it was they, the survivors, who felt humble. 
and I thought of the extraordinary privilege of having been born not into the world that those men had fought for, but the world that they had gone home to build after the fighting was over. The freedoms we take for granted, the prosperity and security that most of us enjoy, these things were not true of the world that those men had been born into. For all its current difficulties, we inherit a better Europe and a better world from them than the one that they inherited from their parents. But it's not better by chance. These things that we all enjoy are not naturally occurring phenomena. They had to be imagined, argued for, patiently built, and they will have to be defended against the challenges they face. Peace is more than the absence of war. Prosperity is more than the absence of poverty. We are lucky that these things have been entrusted to us. Years ago, you, you returned from war slowly, by ship or long, drawn-out journeys over land. You had time to adjust, to decompress. Now it's all much quicker. 36 hours after I'd been in that Kabul basement, choking on the acrid gunpowder and listening to the battle sweep around, listening to men blow themselves up, knowingly going to their deaths in order to show the world what they were capable of, I found myself in a smart cocktail bar in a swanky media hotel in Dubai, surrounded by bright, vertiginous, shining modernity and lovely young women and carefree men. 36 hours. Suddenly I was beamed down from a medieval war into another reality. I felt like a time traveller, disoriented, disconnected. Kabul is three hours from Dubai and a million miles away. Soldiers and war reporters talk a lot about this sense of disconnect when they come home. This too is something they share. They know what it is to walk through a London park, instinctively sticking to the hard surfaces for fear of landmines in the grass, or to walk along Oxford Street, scanning the windows above the shops for snipers. War reporters and soldiers share something else, a guilty secret. They love what they do. It can be great fun. You spend weeks in your war, you own it, you understand it, you care about its every twist and turn, and then you come home and no one knows or cares. It frightens you and keeps you awake at night, and you have nightmares, but you can't wait to get back there. The brilliant newspaper reporter Dexter Filkins described the sense of dislocation he felt when he got home after a decade of reporting Iraq and Afghanistan with these words. People asked me about the war, of course. They asked me whether it was as bad as people said. Oh, definitely, I told them. And then usually I stopped. In the beginning, I'd go on a little longer, tell them a story or two, and I could see their eyes go after a couple of sentences. We drew closer to each other, the hacks and the veterans and the diplomats, anyone who'd been over there. My friend George, an American reporter I'd gotten to know in Iraq, told me he couldn't have a conversation with anyone about Iraq who hadn't been there. I told him I couldn't have a conversation with anyone who hadn't been there about anything at all. I go back to Martha Gellhorn. Why, when she had lost her youthful delusion that journalism could change things, that honest reporting could expose and then correct injustice and dishonour, did she keep on doing it? Why did she go on putting herself in harm's way to, tr to try to find out something of the truth of what was going on in the world? This is what she said in the end. I now think that the act of keeping the record straight is valuable in itself. Serious, careful, honest journalism is essential not because it's a guiding light, but because it's a form of honourable behaviour involving the reporter and the reader. Thank you for doing me the honour of listening. Thank you very much. Can I, can I just take the opportunity on behalf of all of you to thank Alan for that. That was um, brilliantly considered, wonderfully insightful, and I'm sure deeply personal. So thank you very much indeed for delivering that lecture for us. Thank you. Thank you. I'm sorry I went on so long. The time just flew away. I was obviously very impressed by my own words. <laughs> uh, but I apologise for that. I've, have we got time for questions or do we have to...? 
Thanks very much for an incredible lecture. I very much enjoyed it. I grew up over the past 20 to 30 years listening to your stories, and I'd forgotten until today the aspects of this. And my generation doesn't discuss these incredible atrocities that have happened in my time, let alone what happened before this. How do we f stop people forgetting what has happened in the past and start people learning about what we should do in the future? And in particular, the generation that comes ahead of me that doesn't know anything about this, how do we make sure these stories don't get forgotten? It's a challenge. I mean, part of the answer is what you're doing tonight, coming here, and, and the, the, the incredible um, rise of the book festival as a phenomenon. It seems to me to be very important, because it seems to me to speak of the tremendous public appetite there is for this kind of engagement, for this kind of give and take. You get something at a, a, a festival like this that the mass media can't give you anymore. And so I think encouraging people to stay engaged, uh, it's 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 it's... T hopelessly unrealistic to expect everybody to stay up with every aspect of the news. There's too much news. I'm a, I spend my life in news and I can't keep up with it all. Um, but but active civic engagement is really what the, what the health of a democracy in the end will live or die on. And to stay actively involved with each other and coming to events like this and sponsoring events like this seems to me to be vital, especially at this time, when the Anglo-Saxon nations have taken this extraordinary turn that they've taken away from the tradition of the last 70 years to seek something new in the world. And, and leadership, as I say, of, of the, of the, of the post-war idea has moved to, Ger has moved to Germany. It's, it's a vital time. That was a wonderful lecture. Thank you very much indeed. And I'm sure I speak for everyone else. Um, when Jonathan and I agreed to ask you to do this, I had trouble tracking you down. Um, but I finally got hold of you, and you were in Metz, if you remember. In Metz, yeah, I was, yeah, um, in Fra you, eastern France. In France, and you were sitting by the German gate. And, of course, Metz was the hometown of Robert Schumann, one of the founding fathers of the, of the European Union. And I'd like you to say something about Schumann and, and also about Jean Monnet and the other men who began this great enterprise and what their attitudes were. Yeah, I, Schumann was an extraordinary man. He was, he was from that part of France that, he was from Lorraine, that part of France along with Alsace which had swapped um, sovereignty between Germany and France for so long and was disputed until, until our, own t our own age really, until the second half of the 20th century. He was arrested by the Gestapo and interrogated. He was, uh, he was genuinely brave and he was, he was motivated I think like most of his generation by the idea that Europe had to find a way, after a thousand years of that fault line between France and Germany, um, causing so much turbulence and bloodshed and destruction, find a way of doing things differently. And uh, he, uh, he and Jean Monnet and others, I think, had a vision for a united Europe, uh, and start, but started very slowly with the coal, something called the coal and steel community in the, in the early 1950s. But their motivation was not trade. We've only ever thought about it as a trading block in Britain. And that's for good and understandable reasons. But we have a, our historical experience is different. The Second World War was not a shaming experience for the British people. Um, it was for most of the nations of Europe. And, and they, it, but it took that catastrophic war to focus the minds of European leaders and get them behind Schumann's project. There had been projects in the 1920s and 1930s as well. They never got anywhere. Um, but one of the things that, he, that Schumann, I think, was swimming, the tide he was swimming against was the problem that's still with pro-Europeans today, which is that there is no European demos. There is not, there is no, there is not, there's no such thing as a European people, the way you can say there is a Scottish people or a British people or a French people. Um, and so one of, I think one of the mistakes that Schumann and Monet in that generation made was in the conception of the European project, it was an elite, it was an idea driven by elites from the beginning, and very little attempt was made to bring public opinion with them. And that remained true all the way through Maastricht and so on. The French had a, uh, a referendum on Maastricht, by the way, and it passed by 51% to 49%. They nearly blew it out of the water back then in 1992, because they've been as ambivalent about the European project as we have been, but for different reasons. So, the, so the, it's nature as a, as, as, a, as a project driven essentially by elites with little regard to uh, the need to bring public opinion with them has been its downfall. And one reason for that 
has been the, the nature of the contract between the, the European project and popular opinion. As long as the European project was delivering prosper prosperity, the peoples of Europe went along with it. It stopped delivering prosperity after the financial crash a decade ago. And it's become, as I tried to, tried to argue in this lecture, what started as a solidarity project among the peoples of Europe has now become uh, a mechanism by which the wealthy countries punish the poor countries. And that is possibly fatal for the European project. And what you can see already, not in France, not in the Netherlands, but certainly in the Eastern Bloc, the countries that started 27 years ago with such enthusiasm for the Western ideal, you can see them retreating to national silos, putting up barriers, literally as well as figuratively putting up barriers. So I think I, I have huge veneration for Schumann and Monet and the others, but uh, it was an elitist project from the beginning. And I think we probably have to stop there. Again, can I just ask everyone, that was a truly stunning lecture. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you.